15 minutes in, when I kind of felt the need to argue back, you know whenever someone's really strong on their opinion, you feel the need just to argue with them for the sake of it? I realized that I did not know one of either of the candidates' policies. I mean, I knew that Donald Trump's incredibly unpopular with a lot of people, but I couldn't have told you one policy that he put forward. And I couldn't have told you any of Joe Biden's policies either. And look, let's face it, it's not my country, so it doesn't really matter, right? I can probably be forgiven for my ignorance. But one thing I have noticed is, whatever side you happen to be on as we were all watching that, from what I can tell, nobody seems to be expecting Joe Biden to shake the world. I mean, he seems to be a lovely man and, and an experienced politician and all of those things, but he doesn't exactly strike you as a world-changing go-getter, does he? I mean, when your nickname is Sleepy Joe, he hasn't inspired the same kind of, well, the same kind of hope that Barack Obama inspired, or even the same kind of fear that Donald Trump inspired. And when you think about it, partly that's got to do with his age, isn't it? Did you know he turned 78 on Friday? which means really just surviving for the next eight years, being alive at the end of his presidency is as much as anybody could really ask of him. And so nobody's really expecting him to fix the problems that America faces, right? Because pretty much everyone agrees America faces some really big problems. There's deep racial division, there's an economic slowdown, there's a growing divide between the rich and the poor and the rise of China. America has really big problems, and while Joe Biden seems to be a nice guy, nobody's really expecting him to change the world. And you know, Christmas seems a lot like Joe Biden. It's kind of the Joe Biden of holidays. I mean, when you think about it, Christmas is nice. We get the family together and we give each other presents. And as the, the guys were talking earlier about what they love about Christmas, for me, it's all about the presents. I'm, a, I'm very much a presence person. In fact, this year, I came up with the ultimate rort. If you're, if you're a present person, here is the ultimate rort. I came up this year with my quarter birthday. See, every year we have Christmas. Well, you, every year, September, we've got Father's Day. I get a present for Father's Day. And then three months later, we've got Christmas. I get presents at Christmas. Three months after that, on the 9th of March, if you're wondering, I get presents for my birthday. And then there's a six-month drought where I don't get any presents. And so this year, I said to my family, let's have the quarter birthday. Not for any of them, just for me. <laughs> they actually bought it. They got on the 9th of June. They all gave me all of these presents. It was amazing. Suckers. So we've done it one year. It's now a family tradition from here on in. <laughs> but that's the best part of Christmas for me. And when you think about it, Christmas is nice. We, we bask in nostalgia. We sing old songs. Christmas is at summer for us, so it's a nice way to spend summer. It kind of ends off the year. Christmas is a really nice thing. But let's face it, no one actually expects Christmas to change anything, does it? I mean, think about everything that's wrong with the world this Christmas. A worldwide pandemic that's entering its second year, really its third calendar year. Racial tension across the planet and riots and poverty, increasing levels of violence, abuse of women and children that really is another worldwide pandemic, there's actually an awful lot of evil in our world, isn't there? Because that's actually the word you would use for a lot of those things, isn't it? Things like racism and violence and abuse, 
what word would you use about them except evil? And how can poor little Christmas stand up to all of that? How's Christmas likely to make any difference to the big problems that face our world? It can't, can it? Or can it? See, tonight I want us to see that actually the first Christmas was the decisive stroke in the end of evil. Because the first Christmas was what brought the head crusher. We're just starting a series called The Promise of Christmas, and the idea is Christmas didn't just come out of the blue. It was actually the culmination of a bunch of promises that God had made, and in fact, tonight, we're looking at the very first promise God ever made in creation. It was the promise to end evil. And we see it way back in Genesis 3. So, if you've got a Bible, come back with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to do a little bit of Bible flipping. We're going to go from Genesis 3 to the Psalms, to Isaiah, and then to the end of the Bible as well. And so, if you haven't got a Bible, just nudge the person, someone on your table. You can look it up at Bible Gateway. Genesis chapter 3. After two chapters, where everything has been good and everything's been exactly how God wanted it to be, Genesis 3 is the beginning of evil. It's where Satan enters into the picture. So, have a look in Genesis 3 verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? You see, Satan slithers into the pictures and he into the picture and he introduces evil into God's good world. And so it raises the question: well, who is Satan? Lots of people, probably most people, you might be among them, lots of people think that Satan is a fallen angel. So he was one of God's angels in heaven who fell from heaven into sin. And the place in the Bible that we generally get that from is Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. So, Isaiah 14 says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend to the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Now, when you read that, it does sound a lot like Satan falling from heaven, doesn't it? And Ezekiel's actually pretty similar. There's only one problem with that. God is not actually talking to Satan in Isaiah chapter 14. He's actually talking to the king of Babylon. So, it says, take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, and Satan's not even mentioned in Isaiah 14. And Ezekiel 18 isn't talking about Satan either. That one is about the king of Tyre. And what both of those passages are doing is using really poetic language to talk about how high those kings have risen and how low they're going to fall. The fact is, I can't find anywhere in the Bible that tells us where Satan comes from. I don't think God tells us, except that in Genesis chapter 3, 
we do know that He's one of the creatures that God had made. And we also don't know how He became evil. But what we do know is that He is the one who introduces evil into the world. So, in Genesis 3 verse 4, you can see there, He tells the first lie when He says to Eve, you will certainly not die if you eat that fruit. And then He tempts Eve into rebelling against God, which is then where you see the first human act of evil in history. And in fact, one way or another, the Bible seems to say that Satan is behind all of the evil in our world, in one way or another that Satan actually works in people to bring about evil. So, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And notice there, the editors of the Bible have put put God in little g because it's not talking about the God, the true God, it's talking about Satan. People have taken Satan, who is the God, the ruler of this rebellious age, as their God, and Satan blinds our eyes to the truth of the true God. He deceives us. Or if you have a look at how Paul describes Satan's role in our sin in Ephesians 2. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You see, Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The air in the Bible is often the insubstantial thing, not the solid thing. And Satan is at work in those who are disobedient to God. He's at work by lying to us, just like he lied to Eve. He's at work trying to tempt us, just like He tried to tempt Jesus. And He's also at work by sending other people to lie to us and to tempt us as well. Because the thing about Ephesians 2 is, it actually is where I start to feel personally uncomfortable. Because Paul brings me into the picture here, not just Eve and not just Satan. What Paul says here is that we are all dead in our transgressions and sins. Because I'm the one who believed Satan's lies. I'm the one who rebelled against God. And sure, Satan may have been at work in me, but verse 2, I'm actually the one who's disobedient. See, this is one of the key things I need to face up to whenever we start talking about evil. And that is, I'm part of the problem. See, it's not as if we can divide the world into good people and bad people. No, we're all this confusing mix of good and bad, aren't we? Human beings, we're capable of amazing good, amazing sacrifices, amazing generosity, but on the other hand, I have lied too, and I've hurt people too. Throughout my eight years, I've got my share of evil that I'm responsible for. And so if I ask God to fix this problem of evil, at some time or another, He's actually going to get around to dealing with me. Of course, what's even worse is Satan points out my evil to God. Do you know what the name Satan means? Did you even know that the name name? It is a name. In fact, it's the Hebrew word for accuser. Because that's what Satan does. First, he leads us astray with his lies, and then he turns around and accuses us 
of our sin before God. Did you see what Greg Lee did then, God? You can't have someone like him in your kingdom. You have to judge him if you're going to be just God. And Satan hauls this great pile of crimes and sins that I've committed during my life before God. What about his lies, God? What about his hatred? What about his lust? What about his greed? What about his jealousy and his swearing and his drunkenness and his laziness? God, you must be just and judge him of all those things. You see, that's what Satan does. He's the ultimate double-crosser. First of all, he tempts me and lies to me and leads me into sin, and then he turns around and accuses me of those very things before God. You see, the great problem of evil in our world is not social, it's spiritual. You see, the great problem of evil in our world is not social, it's spiritual. Our world is social. It's to do with culture, it's to do with the internet, it's to do with upbringing, it's to do with systems, but actually it's spiritual. Satan's at work in us, leading us towards disobedience. And so, of course, someone like poor old Joe Biden's not going to be able to fix it. No one can. He's just the next in a long line of people who is going to fail to fix the problem of evil in our world. Think of all the things that we try and do to fix the problem of evil. We try and educate people so that they do the right thing. We try and use our technology so that if we can get enough people talking to each other, maybe we can solve the problem. But all that does is lead to more people disagreeing. We use our social programs. We use our laws. And nowadays, we use public shaming. We do all of these things to try and fix the problem of evil, but it's never worked because the great problem of evil is spiritual and not social. I love something that Martin Luther King once said. He said, our scientific power has outrun our spiritual power. We have guided missiles, but misguided men. We don't have the capacity to fix the problem of evil. With all of our programs, with all of our technology, with all of our education, we just end up with better programmed, better educated evil people. Because there's a force of evil at work in our world and in our hearts who is more powerful than any of those things. All of which leads us to the very first promise in the Bible. Because right at the very start of evil, God promises its defeat. He promises a head crusher. So, come and look at what God says to Satan in Genesis 3, verse 14. Genesis 3, verse 14. So, the Lord's, Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. See, right at the very beginning of evil, God promises its defeat. First of all, He curses Satan, which is a really powerful thing in its context, isn't it? Because what has God done as He created? He's blessed. When He created the animals, He blessed them. When He created humanity, He blessed us, but now God is cursing and he says, 
I will put enmity between the woman and you, between your offspring and hers. And then he says this tantalizing thing. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's going to be the great solution to evil. A human being is going to crush Satan's head, which is, of course, it's an image for destroying him, isn't it? But Satan will also strike at this human being's heel. This Satan crusher is going to take a wound, even as he defeats Satan. It's the first promise in the Bible. And in a way, if you, if you want to think about it in these terms, the rest of the Bible is the search for the serpent crusher. Who is this human being going to be who's finally going to crush Satan's head? Is it, going to be, is it Abraham? Is it King David? Is it King Solomon? When you think about it, they're all great men of the Bible, aren't they? But as they live their lives, none of them are the serpent crusher because none of them ever actually defeat Satan. In fact, in the end, Satan wins out over them. So Abraham, even as he goes into the promised land, tells lies about his wife Sarah. David, even at the height of his power, commits adultery with Bathsheba. Solomon builds the great temple and ends up worshipping idols. None of these men can be the one who crushes evil and crushes Satan because they all end up being overcome by evil. And yet all the way, God continues to promise a serpent crusher, someone who is going to bring evil to an end. And it kind of becomes encapsulated in a king. Come with me to a part of the Bible that we often quote, but we don't usually look at in depth. Come with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted bits of the Old Testament. And it was actually the psalm we think that was read out at the coronation of every Jewish king. As each Jewish king came to the throne, we think this is the psalm that was read at their crowning, at their coronation. And it's all about a king who's going to defeat evil. Let's work our way through it. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their sh Now, what we're seeing right there is Genesis chapter 3, but on a global scale. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan led Eve and then Adam to rebel against God. In Psalm 2, all of the nations and all of the kings and all of the rulers are banding together to rebel against God and against His anointed. The word anointed, it's actually a word you know. It's the word Messiah. It's also, in Greek, the word Christ. Really, it's the King. This is a picture of all the human nations rebelling against God and against His King. And look how God responds. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my King on Zion, my holy mountain. What does God do with all these nations rebelling against Him? He laughs and He mocks them. He scorns them, and he points to his king, who he's placed on Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem's built on top of a mountain called Mount Zion. That is, God's great solution to the problem of human evil is his king. The serpent crusher turns out to be a king. 
the nation Russia. In fact, look what God says to the king in verse 7. The king says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. See, God's king quotes God's promise to him. And he says, my son, you're going to be my heir. I'm going to give you all of the nations. And he says, you are going to rule with an iron scepter. You're going to rule with a rod of iron. This serpent crusher is going to be a head crusher. He's going to be a nation crusher. And so look where the warning comes in the last part of the psalm. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, the psalm ends with this warning to the evil nations. Stop your rebellion. Stop your evil because the king is coming, the head crusher is coming, and then evil will be finally defeated. Psalm 2 is kind of like a continuation of Genesis chapter 3. This is the, the next evolution, if you like, of the serpent crusher. God says that He will defeat evil. Now we can see who this serpent crusher is. He is going to be the king. The girls read to us another evolution, another continuation of the promise when they read Isaiah 11 for us earlier. Remember the reading earlier, God promised a king who'd come from David's line who won't be defeated by evil, He'll defeat it. He'll judge justly by God's Spirit He'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. In verse 4, he'll slay the evil ones with the breath of his lips. That's another promise of the head crusher, the serpent crusher. Although we find out a bit more about what his reign's going to be like, it's going to be a return to the garden almost. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will die, lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The infant will play with the, near the cobra's den and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. That's almost a picture of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? This rule of the king is going to take us back to the garden, back to peace, back to harmony because evil will be defeated. God's enemies will be defeated. The king who rules with a rod of iron will also bring peace and harmony with his rule. And that's where the Old Testament ends. It starts with this magnificent promise of a head crusher, the oldest promise in history. But there's no actual answer. Never discover who it is. David doesn't turn out to be him. Solomon doesn't turn out to be him. None of their children turn out to be him. By the end of the Old Testament, the oldest promise in the Bible is an unfulfilled one. And so, from the very start of the Bible, let's swing now to the very end of the Bible. Come with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 12, and one of the most amazing bits of the Bible that you'll ever read. It's such a fantastic part of the Scriptures. Revelation 12 is one of those amazing visions that just capture people's attention. I've often thought with the whole book of Revelation, I would love to see what an animator, what, what someone like Disney could do with it, because it's such a visual picture. Have a look at Revelation 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, 
a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Such an extraordinary vision, isn't it? There's a woman and a dragon and a baby who's about to get born. And actually who the dragon is turns out to be pretty clear because we're told in verse 9. So have a look down in verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. You see, in this vision, the dragon is Satan. It's the serpent from Genesis chapter 3. And Revelation 12 is talking about his defeat. He's being hurled down there in verse 9. This is the moment of his downfall. This is the moment where his head is going to be crushed. Why? Because a baby is born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. This woman gives birth to a son, and he's going to, this son is going to rule the nations. And notice that phrase, comes straight from Psalm 2, doesn't it? The Psalm we just read. Remember in Psalm 2, God said to his king, ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. And now we're seeing this king from Psalm 2 being born, this baby being born in Revelation 12, he is the head-crushing king. His birth is the beginning of the downfall of Satan which tells us what Christmas is really all about, doesn't it? Of Christmas as something nice. Well, the world celebrates Christmas with a big fat guy who gives presents and we eat, we eat nice cake and we get together and it's all nostalgic. But even Christians, we tend to celebrate Christmas in these really nice, polite tones. A baby born in a manger, surrounded by farm animals. It's such a lovely, safe, sanitized image. Most people see Christmas kind of like Joe Biden, nice but not very much likely to change the world. Certainly, it's a time when we escape from the harsh realities of life. We don't deal with them. But that's not Christmas. It's not what Christmas is really about. No, on the first Christmas, the baby who was born, who would crush the world with an iron scepter, The king was born, who would bring justice, who'd put an end to evil, who was going to defeat Satan with his rod of iron. At Christmas, the serpent crusher came to earth. We don't have many Christmas carols about that, do we? But it's what Christmas is really about. In fact, his birth leads to war between God and Satan. Have a look in Revelation 12, verse 7, where it goes next. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he wasn't strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. 
he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. The child's born and it leads to this war in heaven and Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels. And the great climax of the war is the dragon gets hurled down out of heaven because he's not strong enough. He gets defeated. And the great promise of Genesis 3 has come true. This is the moment when Satan is defeated, when his head is crushed. It's what we've been waiting for since the very first promise of the Bible. What's kind of strange about the verses we just read, though, though, is the baby isn't mentioned, right? We, we see Michael and his angels defeating the dragon, but where's the baby? What's he doing? Where's the king? How does, how does Satan get defeated? How is his head finally crushed? Well, that's what gets explained next. One of the things that often happens in the book of Revelation is you see something that doesn't quite make sense, and then you hear a voice that explains what's going on. Look at what the voice in heaven says in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. See, John has seen the vision of heaven, and now he hears what actually happened, what it was about. And what he hears is that God's salvation has come, the salvation from evil, and God's power has come, power over evil. God's kingdom has come, and verse 10, the authority of God's salvation has come, the salvation from evil, and God's power has come, power over evil. God's kingdom has come, and verse 10, the authority of His Messiah, His anointed, His King has come. That is, it's the Messiah who has defeated Satan. But look how Satan is defeated in verse 11. They triumphed over Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We didn't see it in the vision. But here is how Satan is defeated and thrown down. Here's how Satan's head is crushed. By the blood of the Lamb. By Jesus' death. It was the moment when, Je when Satan struck Jesus' heel and Jesus died. It was the moment when it looked like Satan had won. When it looked like he was victorious over the Messiah, because the Messiah had been strung up on a cross and killed. But it was the moment when Jesus crushed his head. So often people ask, how is it that Jesus defeats Satan? What does Jesus do? How does he slay him? How does he crush his head? Was it that Jesus hit him with his iron scepter? Is that what he did? No, Jesus defeated Satan the way you defeat every accuser. You take away his accusation. And that's what Jesus does with his blood. Because in verse 11, when Jesus died, he died as a lamb. In God's Old Testament law, the way you paid for sin, the price of sin, was a lamb. 
So if you sin, you'd buy a temple, uh, you'd buy a lamb, and you'd take it into the temple. And then in the temple, you would place your hand on the head of the lamb, and you would confess your sins. And the guilt for your sin would be transferred onto that lamb, and then the lamb would be sacrificed in your plunge of guilty. You walked out of there an innocent person because the accusation against you was taken away. And that's what Jesus is for us in verse 11. He's our lamb. And when Jesus died, he was paying for all of our sins, all the sins that Satan ever tempted us to commit, all the sins that Satan could ever accuse us of, Jesus, the Lamb, paid for all of them. And so he defeated the accuser. He took away our guilt, which means there's nothing left that Satan can accuse us of. There's the iron scepter that Jesus used to defeat Satan was actually his blood. What power has Satan got over me now? What could Satan accuse me of now? My lies? my greed, my lust, my laziness. Jesus has paid for all of those things. The blood of the Lamb means that all of those things that I've done wrong are paid for. Satan can bring them up before God and say, what about this? What about this? What about this? But each time Jesus says, my blood has paid for that. Your accusations are gone. And so Satan's power over me is completely wiped out. In fact, if you are a Christian... You're one of the ones who defeats Satan now. Because look in verse 11. Do you see Satan is defeated? Look in verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Every time a Christian testifies to what Jesus did with his blood, every time a Christian tells someone about the blood of Jesus, we defeat Satan. We tell someone that the blood of the Lamb was shed for them, and they believe, and that's one more person who's rescued from Satan's lies, one more person who's rescued from Satan's accusation. This is actually something you need to realize about mission. As a church, we do tend to bang on about mission a lot, don't we? And it can be easier to be cynical about it. I mean, is this just really all about church growth? Is this just church wanting to get a notch on its belt of people becoming Christians? Are we one of those churches who only cares about numbers, who only cares about evangelism and never actually cares about love? No, mission is all about love. Because if you see the world and you see people through the eyes that God sees them through, you see that people are trapped in Satan's kingdom, trapped in Satan's lies, guilty of Satan's accusations. But we have the key that sets them free. We have the message that robs Satan of his accusations. And every time someone believes our testimony about Jesus, they're rescued from Satan's clutches. We tell people about Jesus dying for them and there's another soul rescued from Satan's grip. Every time we tell someone about Jesus, we stomp on Satan's head again. His lies and his accusations are defeated again. You see, Christmas is anything but the Joe Biden holiday. It's anything but nice but ineffectual. Christmas is the head-stomping holiday. Christmas is the time that we celebrate the end to evil. 
Because Christmas is when we celebrate the birth of the Satan crusher. Every Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the baby who would grow up to smash Satan's kingdom. Now, of course, at that point, you might say, well, if that's true, why is there so much evil in the world? If Jesus has defeated all this evil, if He's crushed Satan, why is there still so much racism and violence and hatred and abuse if Jesus has actually beaten it? Well, this is where the last part of Revelation 12 helps us, and it's where we're going to finish. Take a look from verse 12 onwards. See what happens after Satan is defeated. It says, therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. In the midst of telling heaven to rejoice because Satan has been defeated, the voice actually says, woe to the earth, because Satan has come down to us and he's filled with fury. Because here's the thing, Satan has been fully defeated by Jesus' blood, completely defeated, fully defeated, but not finally defeated. The final crushing of his head hasn't happened yet. That will happen when Jesus returns. And in verse 12, Satan has this short time left on earth. In verse 17, he's waging war against Jesus' people. And so that means that year on year, the world will still look like a mess. In 2021, we will still have racial violence. In 2021, we will still have abuse. In 2021, we will still have lies and hatred. And we'll feel the effects of evil personally, as people do evil things to us and as we do evil things to other people. And at that point, we might be tempted to think that Jesus' births change nothing, that Satan has actually won. But no. Remember that Satan has been hurled down. Jesus' blood has taken away his accusation and his lies have been crushed. We're just waiting for the final fulfillment of that. Have a look at what Paul says to the Romans right near the end of his letter. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. See how Paul picks up the promise of Genesis 3. And he makes this beautiful promise. He says, you will join with Jesus on that day when he finally crushes evil. This is what Christmas is. It's not just the birth of a baby. It's not just the giving of presents. It's not just the singing of old songs. It's celebrating the birth of the evil crusher, the Satan crusher, the birth of the king. And as we celebrate it, as we celebrate his first coming, it teaches us to pray for the second coming. So that's what we're going to do. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you that your word explains to us so well our experience of the world. 
As we look around our world, we do see things that can only be described as evil. And yet we also see that that evil has invaded our own hearts. Because every single one of us has done things that we would call evil. We've all betrayed people. We've all lied. We've all hurt people that we love. It seems that the evil is not just out there, it's also in here. And we praise you that you sent the one who would defeat evil. And we thank you that when Jesus came, he shed his blood for us. We thank you that he was the lamb who was sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. And not just our sin, but also Satan's accusation. We thank you that he has nothing to accuse us of. And so his kingdom is emptied. We thank you that as we stand before you, we know that every last sin, every last thought, every last action is paid for. And we praise you that whenever we tell someone about that, Satan's kingdom is pulled down and his defeat is proclaimed. And we pray that you would send Jesus back. We pray that Jesus would come back and finish the work that he started on the cross. We pray for not just Satan's full defeat, but his final defeat. And we pray that this Christmas, as we talk to our friends, we wouldn't just celebrate the nice birth of a baby in a manger surrounded by angels. We would celebrate the birth of the King who brings the end to evil. Amen.